a local or cross-country move. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. It is uh, great to be here. David, Merry Christmas. Um, and Merry Christmas to you. You know, it's uh, I guess we call this as our Christmas show, our end-of-year show, because next week is actually Christmas, and the following week, of course, is New Year's Day. So and I thought you were going to be here next week to run the run the office. No, no, I will not be here next week. We're going to be we're going to head out to see uh, my wife's mom. Uh, she's now eighty two, and we're going to celebrate. Hey. Yay! We just Saturday we celebrated my mother's eightieth birthday. For those listeners from my friends on Facebook, uh, they would have seen all my mom's uh, very happy pictures with her. 11 grandchildren and her seven great-grandchildren and she uh, she says this is the happiest day of my life and I said mom what about your wedding day she says this is the happiest day of my life <laughs> I even did a little video for mom well, um, you know, uh, without that wedding day she wouldn't have had all she wouldn't have all this stuff you know right. so it's uh, uh, if, for, for my mom it's it was just remarkable to she I haven't seen her smile that big in years um, <laughs> and great. it was just delightful to see that just come out as part of part of who she. My mom's a very happy person anyway, but it's just just great to see that. Just great to see that. Uh, uh, let me ask: Did did you grow up in in as a Mormon? No, no. Actually, I, I joined the LDS Church when I was uh, sixteen years old with my family. We all joined together as a family. Uh, so that was uh, forty years ago in March. Yeah, I'm that old. Um, so I was a junior in high school. It's, uh, for me, it was a life changing decision, and we, uh, you know, we we are greatly blessed as a family for our membership in the church. And now, were, were uh, you all in Utah? Or? No, I, I. The only time I lived in Utah was to go to BYU. <laughs> I, I grew up in New York. We joined the church in New York, and uh, except for the basically the four years I lived in Utah, um, I've never lived in, in Utah. So. Uh, my daughter lives there now, and I go out there every now and then. And uh, I'm actually serving currently on the alumni board at BYU, and uh, uh, very attached to my former university. But we're having we love Georgia. We've been here now for 26 years, and uh, I don't think there's any place I'd rather be. Uh, it's a wonderful place to live, uh, and I love the fact that we have so many great churches here, and so many so many good people uh, of all faiths. Uh, and it's interesting. Our our law firm has people from just about every faith you can imagine, and uh, they're just all good people. Uh, I mean, I, I have found that faith in God is uh, is a is a major factor in determining how you approach life and how you live life. And even my friends of mine that are that are not believers, I mean, a lot of them have great moral principles, and I admire them and love them. Uh, we were talking before we got on the air, David, about the people stealing packages off yeah. porches. Um, clearly, they don't really have a moral compass. Um, um, no, so maybe I will get one of those glitter bomb boxes. I, I'm fortunate. I don't. I, I live in an area that uh, I don't really have that problem. But it's uh, uh, it's it's sad to see that uh, the society itself uh, uh, doesn't do a better job of uh, of encouraging uh, moral behavior from most people. You know, that's you know that's a difference. It's uh, people who believe uh, in a in an ethical standard, whether it's religion or otherwise, uh, are the backbone of society. Uh, and it is. And we also carry a moral obligation to help those uh, that uh, either don't have the understanding or the education or training uh, necessary to make that happen. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think this prison reform bill should pass because I think it would do. A, a, you know, instead of just incarcerating your problems and spending a fortune on it, there's, there's better ways to, to treat criminals. And we, are, of course, at, at record low crime levels in the United States. Uh, we haven't seen this level low le- level of crime in. A really long time because you know I grew up in the in the in the sixties and seventies in New York, 
Um, and anybody who... That's why you talk funny. That's why I talk a little bit funny. Certainly, that's why I talk fast. Um, and anybody who was, you know, went to New York City in the uh, 1960s and 1970s, I mean, you know how bad crime was. I mean, it was bad. Uh, my dad wouldn't take us to Times Square. I mean, today now the Times Square is like the center of the world. Everybody goes there, but you couldn't go there unless you want to go to porn parlors and uh, and burlesque dancing kind of stuff. Um, so you know where where that has changed and where the bad place is now. I don't know where the bad. There's not many bad places left, but uh, well, they're certainly around. It's there. Horrendous, and uh, it's basically the mayor's fault and. Uh, they're running people off as opposed to keeping them, and that's Portland, Oregon. There's I'll have to talk to my partner Dustin about Portland, Oregon. I'm going to be going there for a meeting here in the fall, in the spring. So There's so many homeless people that it's gotten where folks won't even go out at night to go out to restaurants. Yeah, well, I mean, homeless in San Francisco is actually way worse. If you've been to San Francisco recently, yeah, it's well, terrible. No. Uh, but, you know, that, that is really a question of, you know, why do we have homeless people at all in America? I mean, why do we have homeless people? We're the richest country in the world. Why do we have homeless people? You know, um, I hate to say this, but a lot of the homeless people want to be homeless people. Well, I would say there are several. There are several that want to be. I don't think there's a lot. I think a lot of there's a lot of mental health issues. No, well, yeah, and I think I mean, a, lot a lot of that goes back. A lot of the, if you check into the folks that are homeless, a lot of them. Or my era, the Vietnam veterans or the Vietnam yeah, I mean, it, that have never gotten over PTSD. You know, we, we didn't even know what PTSD was. Yeah, we did. You know, it's been around uh, in our, Well, but forever. we didn't talk about it. Today we talk about it. But even today when you have veteran, new veterans that have come back from war, I mean, that suicide rate is immense. Uh, we, we simply in our country, and I think many countries are the same way, because I've lived abroad, uh, we don't deal – as humans, well, with mental health issues. My wife's a mental health professional. I have a little more empathy towards, towards this issue today than I, than I probably had when I was younger. Um, but we as a country need to do far better uh, for our fellow man. You know, especially as we're here, at, we're here at Christmas time when Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, whose teachings are the foundation of how we live. Uh, and part of that is doing unto others uh, as we would have them done unto us. I mean, part of that is helping our fellow man. Um, you know, we don't live in John Galt's America. That does that place doesn't exist. Uh, we live in a place where we have to help each other. Uh, the frustration for a lot of people is, well, I help them. They, you know, they're still going to do drugs or still going to do you know do this and that. True. Uh, I, I think patience is also a key. But I think uh, as a government, which is one of the reasons we have government is to be able to help people. Um, you know, government is our means through which we collectively move forward uh, as a society, and you know, we're all part of that social contract. Uh, we just we just don't have and haven't had for a very long time the leadership necessary to make these necessary changes. And the idea is, well, you know, let them die or let them live on the streets if they choose to do so. I, I mean, nobody's going to force somebody into a shelter, but if you have competent mental health care, you've got ability of people to, uh, to find a place to live. It's not a question of jobs. There's jobs everywhere. Uh, it's really a question of getting people uh, the desire to move in their life in a more positive direction. Uh, and that's something that's not going to change overnight, but I think something as a society we have to, we have to make happen. We have to, we have to commit to that change. Um, I started, uh, I just got to know a, a group, um, 
up here in Peachtree Corners, which is right right down the street from our office. Uh, and uh, they have a ministry up there called Corners Ministry. And what they've really done is focus on homeless issues, focus on uh, immigration issues, and how they can help their fellow men in that community, which is mostly a white community outside the city, um, uh, help with the Latinos that live there and help them fix their issues and help the homeless issue. And it, what I love about it is the, the empathy that they bring to it, and, and, and not just good intentions, but they bring money. You know, people willing to put their money where their mouth is. And I always respect people that will, are willing to put their money where their mouth is because we have far too many people in America, including most of our politicians, who do a great job of talking and do a very poor job of doing. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I would hope we'll see some changes over that over the next several years. But uh, uh, I fear that uh, um, we, we probably won't is my ultimate fear as part of that. You know, there's a change going on, though. And, and uh, two weeks ago, I came up from checking my mail, and there was a guy standing at my door. And, uh, you know, it's like, who are you? Mm-hmm. And um, he explained that he was the, there's an engineering firm here in this building. Mm-hmm. And uh, he explained that uh, he was their chaplain, and uh, he was also, he's also the uh, city of Marietta Police Department's chaplain. Really? And uh, we got to talking, and that's that's his business. He's an ordained minister, but he is hired by a number of different corporations. Uh, excuse me, to come in uh, once some places once a month, once a week, once every two weeks. And um, the more he talked, the more I respect the company that hired him. That you can go in and sit with him, and if you've got a problem, he'll help you. If not. He gives a very brief message, and uh, I, I just I respect a corporation that will do that and offer their employees more than just money and cokes and and the days well, off. Well, we know? give cokes. I mean, <laughs> not that kind of coke. Yeah. Uh, but this is why it's great being married to a marriage therapist. You say you need to go talk to my wife. <laughs> You've got issues that you need to deal with. No, I think I think com- companies have a moral obligation to help their employees um, to be better people. Uh, and to deal with the issues. You know, a lot of times it's easy to say, well, my employee is not carrying their load. They're not doing their job. They're not living up to expectations I need to get rid of. And without understanding, there's maybe a deeper issue there. It might not just be competence. They might be dealing with, with real challenges in their lives, and they need somebody to talk to. Uh, I mean, we have a program that allows that to happen in our firm um, uh, outside outside the chain of command. So, you know, they, they have permission, we pay for it, and they go get you know, mental health treatment or talk to somebody or do whatever they have to do. Um, but that's something that as a society, that, I mean, again, I'm not a big, big governing guy, but I think government certainly has a role in this, uh, especially in those areas because not everybody works for a company. I mean, we, have, we, are, we are a society of entrepreneurs, and, and it, it lets people kind of sink or swim. And what you see in homeless issues, for example, is people that sunk. Uh, and yet, you know, you know, this is an immigration show, and, and you, you talk about an invisible population, uh, immigrants with mental health issues. I mean, that's a true invisible population. Um, and yet you, you don't see a lot of them uh, on the streets. Uh, you know, I, I, I would suggest that proportion-wise, you see very few of them on the streets compared to other populations in America. Part of that is because families do such a great job in immigrant communities of, of keeping keeping family together uh, and helping those that are struggling. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of, they've also become invisible because they hide from these issues. Um, 
You know, David, today is uh, you know it, it, it's a good day today because it uh, uh, we don't have any immigration emergencies happening. Uh, there's no new rule that's come down in the last 24 hours, uh, but there's so much immigration anxiety in the U.S. This morning, uh, a good friend of mine, Ava Banash, I'm gonna try to get her on the show here in a week or in a couple weeks when we come back, is in Tijuana today as an immigration lawyer, uh, working with the people uh, that are seeking the ability to apply for asylum in the United States. In our show a couple weeks ago, we talked about the legal obligation that America has uh, to uh, to hear asylum claims from people. We signed an international treaty after World War II because of what happened in World War II uh, to not turn away asylum seekers. And yet that's exactly what is happening today on our southern border. We are literally turning away people that we have an international legal obligation to accept to hear their asylum cases. I'm not saying to grant them asylum. I'm saying we have a legal obligation to hear their asylum cases. And Ava did a great job. Uh, She posted some video. So last night, uh, she was uh, at the Tijuana Port of Entry with 15 uh, women and children uh, who wanted to present for asylum in the United States. Did you see the article in the Wall Street Journal about... I did, and this is really this is, yeah. This is you know, and uh, but when you see it in video, when you hear it from your friends who are there, and you, you you feel their experience because you've been in that career, you've been in that area your whole life, and you and you see the struggle that people are having just to use the laws to keep within the rule of law, uh, and, and then being turned away by a lawless administration, and it's heartbreaking. Uh, pictures of children sleeping on the concrete border, literally on the concrete, right in front of a locked fence in the United States. So they've crossed the international border, they're in the United States, and there's a locked fence there. And they left children to sleep on the, sleep on the concrete there rather than let them in and process them for asylum last night. It is immoral. We're going to come back and talk in a second here. This is our first break on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Si usted ha casado con un ciudadano o tiene problemas con inmigración o tiene una oferta de trabajo, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Con más de 100 años de experiencia en la ley de inmigración, conocemos la ley y sabemos cómo ayudarle. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611, o visítenos al www.immigration.net. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Uh, I was talking about my friend Ava, uh, who is down at the border now. She's on an airplane uh, back to the U.S. Uh, she's down there for a couple of days doing her part uh, to really help, try, try to really, I think, understand what's happening at the border and also to help. 
and she posted this little two-minute video. Um, if you remember the famous picture a couple weeks ago, remember the, the immigrants that stormed the border and then CBP launched tear grass, tear grass into Mexico? I mean, you've heard, everybody heard about this. And there's that picture of a woman running with her two children in diapers away from the tear gas. Uh, well, Ava was with that woman last night and her two children. Uh, that's Maria and her family. So I'm, I'm going to play this little two-minute clip uh, for you so you can get a better understanding of perhaps what's going on. Hi, it's 9 o'clock uh, Pacific time, and they just allowed Maria and her four children into the United States um, where they will now make an application for asylum. Uh, hopefully they will be paroled from custody quickly and can make their way to family members living in the United States and then fight out their asylum claim in the future. Um, this has only taken um, six hours of sitting outside the gate to the United States in the United States territory. It has taken the efforts of two members of Congress, um, a steady supply of blankets and trips to the bathroom, and tamales and um, water uh, it has taken a media presence it has taken songs but they are in eight unaccompanied minors went in probably about 90 minutes ago um, but then another fascinating thing happened while we were there waiting another family from Honduras showed up at the port of entry and they told them they can't accept anybody family figured out what was going on with all these asylum seekers piled up in the port they've joined our encampment they're still waiting to come in and we're planning on waiting with them uh, they weren't planned nobody knew who they were they just showed up a family a father carrying a small child a mother and an older daughter um, the uh, Mexican officials have been present, but haven't really had much to say. Uh, there's been some weird photo taking of us, uh, but other than that, uh, we have not been roughed up or, or mistreated, just made to wait an extremely long time to do the simplest of things, to ask for asylum under the law. Fifteen people. I think that's it for tonight. Thank you all for paying attention, for sharing, for listening. For caring. Bye. That is uh, a remarkable story, um, and we want to try to get Ava on, on the radio in a couple of weeks. But <clears throat> federal law is clear. It says that anyone may apply for asylum at the board, ports of entry of the United States <coughs> or within the United States, regardless of their means of entry. So somebody comes in illegally across the border uh, in a place that's not a port of, port of entry or inspection point, they have a legal right to apply for asylum, period. That's, that's the federal law. Uh, Trump can change it. Nobody can change it. Um, it's, it, it derives from our international treaty obligations uh, that we signed uh, more than 40 years ago. Uh, that stem directly uh, from the treatment of Jews during World War II, and we turn people back to death camps in Europe. Um, and in, it's easy to say... This is different. This is different uh, because uh, you know there's no death camps in these countries. Or there, well, you know, you haven't been to these countries, have you? 
Um, most of these people are coming from Central America, uh, what, what they call the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, particularly Honduras right now, which has uh, some of the highest murder rates in the world, uh, a country much of which territory is controlled by gangs, uh, uh, to many of whose leadership was deported from the United States, um, and uh, whose gangs actually originated in, in, in California, in Los Angeles, the MS-13 gang. And uh, we continue to deport people to these countries knowing that they will die. And there had been at least uh, four recorded instances in the, last, in the last six months of individuals who were deported from the U.S. after their asylum cases were denied who had been murdered when they went back home. Uh, exactly as I said, they would be. Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, unfortunately truly sad uh, that, we, that we see this happening um, uh, on our doorstep. Now, here's what's interesting. You have to ask, well, why is this only happening under Trump? Well, it's not. I mean, these numbers are pretty consistent with the numbers that began in about 2013 when violence really began to take over in, in the Northern Triangle. And as people uh, sought refuge uh, in the United States, the Obama administration created some camps uh, in some very terrible places. And the Obama administration took a lot of heat from the immigration bar and from, and from immigrants or immigrant organizations for literally the mistreatment of asylum seekers. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the Obama administration ultimately backed down a little bit. Uh, and they began to parole people more frequently uh, in the United States. Let me kind of explain what this means. When you apply for asylum, let's say you get to the port of entry, uh, what the Obama administration did is they basically took you, and they then had time, they had a time frame. If you were an unaccompanied minor, they had 72 hours, the max they could hold you, uh, and they they held these kids in what are called eleras, which you would translate as freezers, um, like walk-in freezers. These are typically... um, Buildings in which the temperatures kept very low. The kids are given a mylar aluminum blanket uh, and just you know fed basic food until Health and Human Services comes along and, and figures out where these kids are going to be temporarily housed. Health and Human Services is currently housing more than fifteen thousand unaccompanied minors. Record numbers of unaccompanied minors because the Trump administration has decided that when somebody comes forward to claim that child, not only will they do a background check if they did, to verify it's not a child predator and it's not a, not a kidnapper, but it's really a member of their family. Uh, if they determine at that point that that person's undocumented, they will put that person into deportation proceedings. That's something the Obama administration did not do. And so what's happened is this is, this is as easy to understand as, as apple pie. Um, David, so if, if if in the past you wouldn't be pick, you wouldn't be put into deportation, would you pick up your child? Sure. Now would you pick up your child? No. I mean, this is really simple to understand. So now you have record numbers where essentially health and human services are now maxing out on the number of kids that they can detain. In one of their detention camps for children, they have more than fifteen hundred kids in a camp. I mean, this is this is immoral that this is happening in the United States. Um, but let's say you come as a family. So the kids come in at the border. Uh, Abba talked about the nine unaccompanied minors that came in. 
Uh, they will be processed typically to Health and Human Services in about 72 hours, uh, and they will be sent to different parts of the United States. Uh, perhaps they have family that will claim them, but perhaps they won't, and they will be able to present their asylum cases. Um, now, we do have special rules for what are called special immigrant juveniles, so that if a child is alone and has no family, uh, they can apply for permanent residence in the United States. Uh, if they are uh, brought into the custody of a court in the United States, you know, like you know, state court finds that, you know, you have a guardian, that guardian takes care of you, they, they can apply for residence. Uh, so in those circumstances, there, there is an option for the kids, although those numbers are limited and there's a waiting line of five or six years for these kids to actually process their paperwork. Uh, if you come in as a family or as a mom with a child or a dad with a child, typically have to say I'm applying for asylum. Now, the Sessions administration of the DOJ ended the ability of people. Um, they limited the ability of people who were claiming asylum based upon domestic violence, which is something the Bush administration had finalized, uh, and Sessions simply took that away. And so those people are going to have a very difficult time filing for asylum in the United States, uh, uh, obtaining asylum in the United States. Um, Sessions administration also said uh, that people that are applying for asylum based upon generalized gang violence uh, cannot get asylum in the United States. And that's always been very difficult uh, anyway. Um, so it, most of the people that are fleeing Guatemala, a lot of them is domestic violence. Uh, a lot of Honduras and, and El Salvador are gang-related violence. And most of those people, I mean, probably upwards of 90%, are going to be denied their asylum claim. But if they come into the border, Customs and Border Protection... Uh, the Border Patrol, they, they are responsible at the border for admitting people to the United States. If you say, do you have any papers? And they'll say, no, I want to claim asylum. They're required to then move you to a facility where they can have one of two choices. They can parole you into the United States. And parole is a temporary legal admission to enable you to apply for asylum. Uh, and then you have a year to apply for asylum. And what they do is they put you into deportation proceedings. So they parole you into the U.S., typically with a specific address that you're going to go to, with the requirement that you report to the local ICE office. Now they change agencies. It's a different agency. Now ICE, you can, typically within a week you're at an ICE office, and ICE frequently puts an ankle bracelet on you at that point. Uh, and then you, you report regularly to ICE until you have your hearing in court and you possess your case. Um, alternatively, they can keep you detained. Most single men and most dads are separated from their family if they're not a single dad, and they are sent to detention centers alone where they are frequently denied bond even if they have a viable claim for asylum. At that point, they, are, they undergo what's called a credible fear determination. That is, an asylum officer talks to them and says, why are you afraid? What is your, you know, why, why don't you want to go back? And they write up what that is. And if the officer believes that the claim is credible, okay, oh yeah, okay, if, if that's true and you appear to be truthful, you could qualify for something. It's a very low standard. Um, and, you know, up until recently, that was like a 99% grant rate of credible fear. Okay, you know, you could possibly, because the standard is very, very low. But when you present your case in front of an immigration judge, that's where the numbers go down significantly. Uh, for example, if you're, if you're a man and you're detained in Stewart, your chance of getting asylum is zero, basically. They might have granted three or four cases last year, so you have basically a zero chance of getting asylum. So this is the process that's supposed to happen. Well, under the Obama administration, they just basically set up big camps and just put people and let them in, and as many showed up, they let in. The Trump administration now says that most ports of entry can only handle 40 people a day. 
which is ridiculous because they were able to handle thousands a week before. So they can only handle 40 a day. And that's what that report in the Wall Street Journal was talking about, people literally waiting. That was done by Miriam Jordan, a terrific article, waiting in Tijuana uh, for or, or other parts of Mexico. Mostly it's Tijuana because it's the safest place on the border for most people to enter the United States. Uh, and there are thousands, maybe 8,000 people there now. And if they're going to take 40 a day, it's going to take a very long time to process people in. Uh, they even have reports of them now, uh, you know, volunteers and the Mexican government and the CBP writing the numbers of children and their parents together on their arms. Like, that's a really good idea from the past uh, to try to make sure family groups stay together. I mean, there's probably better ways than writing something on the inside of your left forearm uh, to get this done. David, you want to say something? I can tell you're just like... <laughs> no, I... I how many of these people trying to come in are U.S. trained attorneys? You mean how many? How many of pe- the people claiming asylum or wanting asylum are U.S. trained attorneys? Well, none of them are attorneys. That's the yeah, problem. That's, I mean, okay, none, none so, of them understand the law. So, the answer is, if if a bunch of attorneys explained and worked with them, you know, then possibly they could get their asylum. But, you know, and, and then everybody throws up their hand, oh, my God, I can't give up my practice to go down and do this, even though they would volunteer. Mm-hmm. But this is the same thing that we have, and this is a very, very easy answer. You brought up the fact that homeless people, many of them have, are mentally ill or have mental problems. And then we have the homeless that have injuries mm-hmm. of some sort or illnesses of some mm-hmm. sort. We have immigrants that are trying to come into the United States that have some type of illness. That's why they had, uh, the, you know, the the island was uh, where everybody was checked uh, mm-hmm. coming in. But there's a very, very simple answer to all this. Now, Congress would probably, and a very inexpensive answer to this, Congress won't do it for medical purposes, and Congress won't do it because they can't necessarily control it. But I can't say, I can't give you one doctor that does a show here, or has done a show here in the past, that wouldn't volunteer in a heartbeat. But I know as great an attorney as you are, I bet you carry malpractice insurance. Of course I do. Of course. Same way with doctors. They have to have malpractice insurance. But if Congress would get their head out of the sand and say that, look, uh, Mr. Cook, you're a good attorney. i tell you what we'll do. We'll forego any claims against you, malpractice, if you'll volunteer a month a year to help the immigrants coming in or two months or whatever. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. And we'll give you a tax break. They give the same thing to doctors. Doctors want to help the homeless. They want to help anybody in need of medical attention. But they can't. They can't because of the malpractice. Well, that's and a little off topic from what we're talking about. But, you know, but uh, that's bringing the this answer. Back. Well, sure, it's the answer. But this Congress is not going to say, hey, let, for example, in immigration court, you know, because we talked about these, there's no right to legal counsel. I mean, you can have a lawyer, but you don't get assigned a lawyer in court. So you go in there, and there's pictures, the videos of these kids that are three years old going to court, and they're literally sitting in the chair by themselves. I mean, it's heartbreaking to see this kind of thing. Um, but it's, 
it, this Christmas season, I, I, we have several people from our office will be going down to the border here uh, early next year to help with this stuff. Um, this is below what we are as a country. We're better than this. Uh, and yet, and I'm going to blame it. Right, the, you know, Obama was bad. Trump has made it worse. Uh, we thought Obama was terrible as how he did this at the border. Yeah, he reacted in in a in a reactionary way instead of in a in a way that could have eased eased the problem at the border and helped these countries deal with the issue internally. Trump has exacerbated intentionally exacerbated the problem. And you know, for example, his his great political stunt right before the election to send troops to the border. He sent them to Texas. You know how many people went to Texas? None. It was a stunt. It was a $200 million stunt. What could you have done with that $200 million? Probably could have hired about 200 lawyers uh, to uh, uh, and, and staff or 2,000 lawyers to deal with these issues overnight. Uh, let's take a break here before I get too upset on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Si usted tiene problemas con inmigración o asuntos que tiene que arreglar, llama a los abogados de Cook Immigration Partners. Somos en su lado. Tenemos más de 50 años de experiencia haciendo las leyes de inmigración y defendiendo a los inmigrantes. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611, a las 404-816-8611 o al www.immigration.net. This is Daryl Pullis, inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national... Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Thanks to David. I had a great piece of chocolate just now. I'm just saying, if you get a chance to eat chocolate, do it whenever you can. Chocolate's good for you. I want to I want to just touch on as this year ends a couple of things that are sitting out there that immigration is proposing. That uh, you know we talked about CBP and how they're screwing up the border. We talked about ICE how they're screwing up detention and removal. Let's talk about how USCIS is intentionally screwing up the legal immigration system. Um. Immigration announced uh, that um, uh, a, what they called a merit-based rule for the H-1B program. What they're talking about right now, we know that H-1Bs are limited to 65000 a year plus another 20000 for master's degree people. And that last year, uh, a reduced number, we had 195,000 people apply for these 85,000 green cards. And the immigration for years has conducted what's called a H-1B lottery. So basically, you as an employer have to prepare an application. All the work goes into it. All the lawyer fees get paid. And you FedEx that to the government between April 1 and April 5. And if you get picked in the lottery, they cash your check and off you go. If you don't get picked in the lottery, they send the case back. And you've still already paid your lawyer to prepare the application. It's a stupid system. So they announced they're going to move to an applic- a non-application-based lottery. So they're going to have employers... 
register online with, uh, with their basic information and their prospective employees' information, and then they will conduct the lottery of, the, of, of that application. Now, I think, why haven't they done this before? This is easy, right? This, how long, David, you could probably set this up on an Excel spreadsheet and WordPress. Uh, heck, you could probably set this up on Facebook uh, with a poll. I mean, it, this is, cannot be that hard to do. Uh, so they announced this on December 3rd they're going to do this. And in the past, the lottery has been, hey, we're going to pick, they're going to take all the master's degree people first, and then we're going to pick them the 20, and if they're not picked in that lottery, they all, then we're going to have the 65,000 lottery with everybody else. They announced we're going to switch the order of the lottery such that all the master's degree people are going to be in the general lottery first, and then whoever doesn't get picked of the master people, they're going to have another lottery just for masters of people, and they're going to do 20000 Now, they said that that means that masters of people will be more likely to get the visas. And I'd have a hard time wrapping myself around that statistical number, David. Uh, so let's say there's 80,000 H1, H1Bs for masters of people, and they're going to do, in the past, they did the 20000 first. So they know... That 20 of those 80 are going to be selected. That means there's, there's 60,000 left that are going to join the other 120,000 people in the regular lottery. So their chance of getting picked in the, in the master's lottery is 25%. Their chance of getting picked in the regular lottery is 30%. All right, so it's 65 and there's 180 left, more or less, maybe 32%. Now they're going to say we're going to take all 195 put them in the main lottery, now they have a 25% chance, and then those are left randomly, however many of those happen to be, presumably around 75 or 80,000 are going to go in the master's degree lottery and they're going to get picked uh, in the 20,000. They say this is going to, they're going to increase a meritorious selection of beneficiaries. I, I'm not convinced that that number doesn't work, but this is why I went to law school and not math school. But here's the other thing they want to do. So they said, hey, yeah, we're going to do this upfront program, uh, and we want to do it for April 2019, what's called the fiscal year 2020 cap. Uh, then they, at the very end of the regu- proposed regulation, they said, yeah, um, we, we're not really sure we're going to get it done for this year. How could, what, first of all, why would you announce you're doing it and not basically have the architecture in place to get it done? It cannot be that hard. It, it just cannot be that hard. You set up an online database on USCIS.gov, says fill this information out, these 10 lines, push the button. In response, you get an email receipt that says, hey, here's your number in the lottery. It's number 23. All right. And we'll let you, we're going to pick the lottery numbers on April 1. Uh, or we're going to pick the numbers on you know, April 1, and then April, you know, then you can begin sending in your notices. You send, send in your applications. It can't be that hard. My question is, how many of these folks have Apple iPads or laptops? Or You think none of them do. Like, this is some sort of grand adventure that, that nobody's ever done before. How hard could this possibly be? I mean, is, is the place staffed by morons? I mean, it can't be that hard. Um, and so they have a public comment period uh, is ends January 2nd. Uh, uh, and this is, I mean, this is the kind of thing that makes you just roll your eyeballs and go, man, this is why our system sucks, because people like this are running it. Um, 
Now, uh, the next, so that that's your H-1B system. I, I'm telling employers, look, yeah, we need to prepare for the old system now because they don't think they can get this done and working properly in time. I can't fathom that they can't do that, but that's not my job to fathom. My job to prepare my clients. So let's prepare the H-1Bs the old way, and if they do happen to luck out and do it correctly, then, okay, we'll only file the ones that we've done. Um the, the next thing uh, that the Trump administration is doing is they have done some clarification on some of the rules. And actually, I think this actually may be a good thing. I don't say this much about the Trump administration, but this is probably a good clarification. So under the L-1 visa, an L-1 is for an individual who has been working abroad for one year, what they call one continuous year, uh, as either a manager executive or as a specialized knowledge employee. And uh, the clarification uh, that, that what, what does it mean one continuous year abroad out of the three years prior to the time of the filing of the application, or what's called the one-year foreign employment requirement? Uh, this, to me, has never seemed complicated, David. I, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me, but apparently people are confused by it. Uh, so this, what this classification does is this. It says the L-1 beneficiary must be physically outside the U.S. during the required one year of continuous employment except for brief trips for business or pleasure to the U.S. And the petitioner and the beneficiary must meet all requirements, including the one year of foreign employment when the application is filed. That's, that's the policy memo explanation. And as I read this, I thought, we really need a policy memo for this? But apparently people weren't getting it uh, as part of the process. Um, and um, here's what the USCI says, quote, in support of the Buy American and Hire American executive orders, one of the worst executive orders ever written, by the way, USCIS is reviewing all employment-based immigration programs to eliminate fraud and David, how easy is it to eliminate fraud? We were talking about this before everybody came in, before we got on the air, right? Um, that there's all these, you have a whole show dedicated, to, you want to plug that show? You have a whole show dedicated to senior fraud. That we do, and it's uh, hosted by um, Joseph uh, Gavales. He's a uh, former federal agent. And uh, yesterday they were talking about um, uh, mail scams, uh, night riders, which I didn't know what that meant. And also the telephone scams, which all of us get. I'm, I'm not even sure that's dedicated to just the elderly. No, it's not. It's certainly the immigrants we've talked about. The immigrants certainly are victim to that, people pretending yeah. to be from the IRS, sure. IRS or ICE or CIS demanding money. And, you know, it's amazing, and in my opinion, uh, it's amazing the way these crooks get yours and my telephone number or our email address or our whatever. And... In my opinion, if the postal inspector or whoever can trace this back to anybody, those anybody's should be hung in public. <laughs> I think they should. I think there should be a public embarrassment. Mm-hmm. You don't have to physically punish them, but I think there must be a public embarrassment associated with that, such that you are so ashamed of what you did that you would never do again. The problem there, there's a lot of people out there, David, that suffer from a condition that in Spanish. It's called sinvergüenza, which means without shame. Yeah. They are literally sinvergüenzas. Uh, they are without shame. And they just don't care. Um, and, uh, you know, the greatest example of this, I think, is Donald Trump. I think he is without shame. 
I think he just simply doesn't have a shame gene. And that's why he lies about everything, because he just doesn't care. Um, I, I, I won't address that, but uh, <laughs> I will address the fact that our it's called SAFE, SAFE Senior Hour. It's at 10 a.m. every Monday morning with our, our host that is fantastic, uh, Joseph Gavalis. And uh, Joseph was, uh, like I said, he was a federal agent for many years, and uh, we had the... Uh, Chief of Police from Marietta, Georgia, on yesterday. When, when, is, when is Joe's show on? When when does he appear on America's Web Radio? 10 a.m. on Mondays. 10 a.m. So same bat time, different day, same bat channel. Yeah. Yeah. You, it's, it's a Batman joke, David. Come on. I mean, same bat time, same yeah, bat channel. Yeah, did you grow up in the 60s? My goodness. Yeah, I did, uh, but I wasn't a big Batman. I, Superman. Oh, uh, uh, yes, I love Superman, too. So um, anyway, there's a show about this, about the people that are ripped off. Uh, I, we know in the immigration lawyers know people, clients call us all the time. Hey, somebody from the I, I, ICE called me and said that I have to go to this place and pay the money. And I'm really worried. I don't know what they're talking about. It's like, this is a ripoff. It's a ripoff. It doesn't exist. And I will tell you, ICE and CIS do take this seriously. But I don't, I, I, there aren't enough postal inspectors. There aren't, I, I think the F, there should be better laws. We're going to have the Atlanta. Postal inspector on. Oh, good. Well, this week, next week? Oh, not before uh, Christmas. I mean, uh, at, right after the right first Christmas. Year. Great. I definitely. And you can download that podcast on America's Web Radio, among other venues around there. Yeah. All right. So do that. Um, let's take our last break here, David, if it's not too early. Uh, and we'll come back on the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Soy Charles Cook, el jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Estoy en su lado. Con más de 20 años de experiencia con la ley de inmigración, conozco cómo ayudarle. Sé la ley y sé que alguna gente podemos ayudar. Llámanos hoy a las 404-816-8611. A las 404-816-8611. O visítenos en el internet. www.immigration.net. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, everybody. Hope you have it. Ho, ho, ho. I think it's going to be a great new year. Um, just understand this. After January 17th, you're on the last two years of Donald Trump's presidency. So you got that going for you or somebody soon. Uh, I th- you know, I'm thinking about, thinking about politics, David. Um, and this blue wave that swept over the House represented 40 seats. By the way, Martha McSally, new senator from uh, Arizona. She's the one that lost to Sakima or Sakina, whatever that woman's name is. Uh, but this is the seat. This is the McCain seat. So she was appointed because Kyle said, okay, I'll do it through the end of the year. But Kyle's got to be like 80-something. probably said, get me the heck. He's probably said, this place is nuts. Get me out of here. So Martha McSally will be the, the new senator from, uh, from Arizona as Republican for the next two years. And she's actually run for election again in two years. Um, we'll see who runs against her at that point. Uh, but the House, this is interesting. So we know that the, Republic, the, the, the Democrats ran on three key issues. Health care, the economy, and immigration. 
Right? Those are the three kind of big issues that a lot of them worked on. So they, they are now under a microscope uh, with your favorite Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, um, to pass something. Uh, now, they could adopt the Republican strategy, David, of uh, when the, when the uh, Democrats had the Senate, of literally repealing Obamacare 57 times in the House, never to be voted on. So they, they could pass bills that the Senate will never take up with Mitch McConnell. That's a possibility. And nobody would fault them for doing that since Republicans did the same thing. But it's not really the most effective way to, uh, uh, to perhaps govern. So I, I, it is quite clear that they will pass some sort of election-based bill early on um, about access to ballot, et cetera, like that. Maybe something, something along those lines of strengthening the Voting Rights Act, which, which of course, will die in the Senate. Uh, they will try to pass something on um, the economy of some kind. They will try to pass something on Obamacare, try to fix Obamacare, which Trump is willing to work with them on. We'll see how true that is. But, again, it may die in the Senate. They will have to pass an immigration bill. They have to. Now, that bill is going to have to give some sort of path to legality or permanent residence for DACA kids. Okay, it's good. They're going to have to do this. Uh, they're going to have to do something for TPS people that Trump uh, has upended their lives, temporary protected status. They're going to get a, a path to legality for people that have been 20 years here legally that all of a sudden Trump wants to deport to El Salvador and Honduras. You think the problem is bad now. Imagine if that happens at the border. Uh, and they have to do something on the attacks on employment-based immigration by the Trump administration. Uh, the uh, companies are going ape nuts about this. For example, the spouses of H-1B visa holders, H-4s, under certain limited circumstances can get a work permit. It's called an H-4 spouse EAD. Most of these spouses have bachelor's, almost all of them have bachelor's degrees, uh, and uh, almost all of them are Indians because those are the only people waiting long enough for a green card that they need this extra work card. Trump wants to end that program. And I was talking to a client yesterday about this, and they were like, we have people work for us. How are we going to keep these people employed? I mean, they're essential. And our worst fear is if their spouse is an H-1B, they're H-4, that's a two-income household. They're living in an area that's very expensive to live. They no longer have two incomes. That H-1B spouse is going to leave. And, we're, and we can't even hire anybody. We have nobody we can hire. We run ads and no U.S. citizens apply ever for these jobs. Uh, and so you will see Congress have to address H-4 EADs. I don't think they're going to address. I don't. I don't see the House saying, "Hey, let's solve the entire immigration problem all at one time." Don't see that happening. Uh, uh, I'd like that to happen, but I don't see that happening uh, because uh, I, I, Trump will insist on crazy stuff, which they simply will not pass, and the House and the Senate will just sit on it again. Um, but this is all in the context of the wall. Trump wants his wall. Trump let let him shut down the government. Do you care if the government shuts down, David? By the way, do you, do you care? David does not care if the government shuts down for three weeks. And here's the thing. At this point, only about 30% of the government, or 25% of the government shuts down. The rest of them don't. For example, the Department of Labor is already funded for next year. They passed that bill in September, so they don't shut down. Uh, DHS shuts down, but nothing that you deal with. I mean, the, the FBI doesn't shut down, or DOJ. Uh, USCIS is fee-funded. They don't shut down. ICE, does, ICE still does detained stuff. CBP keeps operating. They don't get paid, but they have to keep working. And, they, of course, you know they always get paid on the back end, right? They're not going to lose their paychecks, for goodness sakes. Um, so let's say Trump shuts down the government for a month. Okay. 
Now the Democrats have control. December, January 3rd, I think they get in, January 2nd, January 3rd. They'll get sworn. they done it to the post office. Yeah. So the, is the post office, I don't think the post office gets shut down. Because the post office, is fun, isn't it funded by uh, stamps? They're self-funded. I don't think the post office shuts down. Um, so you've got a situation where, okay, you want the wall? We'll give you, here's the thing is, most Democrats, they don't care about the wall. The wall's a symbol, right? You want the wall? Great. We'll give, we'll give you money for the wall. Uh, but here's what we want. Boom, 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 boom. Now, that, that's what a good negotiator does. Uh, and uh, since, uh, since Pelosi embarrassed Trump in the White House uh, last week, uh, uh, you've seen that she's a, she's a tough woman. She's a tough woman. Uh, we'll see if they keep that up. I think Chuck Schumer is a wet noodle, personally. Uh, and he should step aside and let somebody who actually negotiate be ahead of the Democrats in the Senate. Uh, but I think we're going to see the, uh, the Democrats push something forward on immigration in the House uh, that will cause people a great deal of, a great deal of excitement. Because uh, it's going to be, cr- it's going to have to be across the issues: DACA, TPS, H1Bs, H4s, um, and, and other business-related issues that CIS is is causing havoc on right now. And I think that uh, that will be interesting to see if they actually pull it off. They actually pull it off as part of the process. Um, the last thing uh, that's kind of um, kind of come down, uh, David, is uh, you know, immigration. You don't know this probably, but. Uh, the local immigration office, they don't adjudicate anything other than marriage cases and family cases. That's basically what they do, ma- family cases uh, and naturalization cases. All the other immigration stuff is done at what's called a service center, kind of like where you send your tax return. You send it to an IRS service center. And there is there are six of these service centers around the United States. Uh, one of the oldest ones is in Texas, uh, just outside of Dallas, in a place called uh, um, in Irving. No, it's not in Irving. What's it? Uh, what is that place called again? Um, um, it, I could I could picture it in my mind. It's right by the airport, the Dallas Fort Worth airport. Um, there, it's two hundred and sixty-seven thousand square feet. It's a one-story building. You imagine how big this thing is. This thing is this thing is butt big. It is really big. Um, big. Yeah. So they're they're now uh, going to be building a new facility because it's not big enough. Uh, for their for their because they have currently three three buildings all over the place, they're going to have one big giant building uh, to house these people in. And uh, what do you think it's going to cost to build that? A lot, <laughs> far more than if you and I built it. I think uh, yes, it's uh, it, it's uh, several hundred millions of dollars uh, to be spent uh, on that on that uh, program. Um, the last thing I want to touch base is something that's actually been bothering me about immigration recently. You know, when I started practicing immigration law, uh, the local office had a lot of authority. Uh, and they could do lots of things, something they can't do now. And you used to be able to go down to the local office, and you'd see somebody, hey, and you just talk to them. Hey, can you help me with this? And they would help you. And it, was, it was a very much a collegial thing. Or you'd, you, what you would do, if I, had a, if I had an issue with a client, I needed an answer. What's the status of this case? I would literally camp out in the hallway at the local office. And I'd wait for somebody to walk out of their door, and I would just, hey, Dwight, I need to ask you a question about this. It was, it was, it was informal. It was probably a pain in the butt to them, but we got stuff done together. Can't do that anymore. It's, now, now the new immigration building locally is a fortress. So they let you do what's called an info pass appointment. As you can make an appointment online to go in and ask about a case. And lawyers can go in and ask about three cases. You've got 
you got 20 minutes to ask about three three cases. Um, they're gonna sh- they're shutting that program down, so you won't be able to go in and ask about your case anymore. Um, so the end of customer, you know, that service side of this, it, USCIS, which S is for service, it should just be USCI, United States Citizenship and Immigration, because they're not giving any service. So they can end that. So that now they have an 800 number, what a lot of my colleagues call 1-800-USELESS. Um, uh, and you call them, but these 800-800 number rings to a call center. And this call center is staffed by minimum wage employees in rural areas of the United States uh, who, when you say, I have a question about my case. Oh, sir, great, what's your case number? And they go online to the same website I can go to, public website, and they put the case number in. And they say, well, it looks like your case was filed on this date and it's pending. And the current processing time, which they get off the current case, is next. And, of course, you already know all that. Yes, I know that, I know that, sir, because you're not officers, because uh, I can read the Internet, too. I need to speak to a secondary officer, an actual immigration officer. Oh, it's a long time waiting, and we can't do that. And so basically they've insulated themselves from any public inquiry about what's going on. They shut down the ability of congressmen and senators to deal directly with the service centers, instead forcing them to go through a headquarters person to resolve cases. And if you don't know this, David... Um, the generally the first or second largest issue uh, at the constituent office of every senator and congressman is immigration. I mean, typically VA is number one because <laughs> it's so terribly run, and USCIS is two. Immigration is number two. Uh, and they have now limited the ability of these folks to get answers to questions. Uh, this insularity that's occurring is basically it's the insulating of democracy from those of us who, who are actually constituents of that democracy. And it's bad. It's very much a totalitarian trait, uh, and we have to be very vigilant as a people that we do not allow this to continue to happen. David, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas season uh, and uh, a joyous new year. I, uh, much success in the coming year. We look forward to, I think, our 11th or 12th year of the Immigration Hour here on America's Web Radio. Uh, we have lots of podcasts that are stored on the website. Uh, we're on iTunes. If you want to be on the show next year, you have a question, uh, you have an issue you want to bring up, email me at chuck at immigration.net. If you've got a complaint, send it to David at America's Web Radio. He has a bucket on his, on his computer that he puts those into that nobody ever reads. Uh, but until next week, this is your host, Chuck Cook. Uh, in two weeks, to the new year, 2019, your host, Chuck Cook, the Immigration Hour on America's Web Radio. I want to go the other way and, and uh, thank you for doing the show for so many oh, years you, and certainly bringing a different perspective of our laws that, than you get anyplace else. Um, you look at the news and it's almost two stories. You look, and I say news, it's not news, it's opinions. But uh, you go to the major networks and you look at the stories and they're totally different from the truth, which you present every week is truth, the truth. Truth is and, power. Uh, I uh, I want to thank you for the years that you've been here, and I hope that you and your family have a wonderful Christmas season, and we'll all look forward to 2019 be, being hopefully better than 2018. Merry Take Christmas, Bye-bye. Soy Charles Cook, abogado y jefe del grupo de abogados Cook Immigration Partners. Llámenos hoy si usted tiene problemas con inmigración, si ha sido arrestado, si se casó con un ciudadano, 
o tiene una oferta de trabajo. Nosotros le podemos ayudar. También podemos explicar con qué puedes hacer para recibir los beneficios de inmigración. Llámenos hoy a las 404-816-8611, 404-816-8611, o visítenos por el internet a www.immigration.net. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.